we all know how this works on WhatsApp, right? Aunt number two that is in the corner being like, turmeric is going to solve all your problems and here's a video about it. And turmeric is going to save you from the COVID virus. If you just grind it up and put it in a little face mask and put it on your face for 10 minutes, I promise you it's going to help close your nose and then you're never going to be able to inhale the virus ever again. Yay! Dun, dun, dun. No, <laughs> like, can we not do this? So today, something a little bit different is happening on the pod, and I'm glad that it's shifting a little bit because one of the first things that a lot of my good friends asked me when they heard the first episode was like, oh, is this going to be your niche? Are you going to talk about consumption or environment forever? And honestly, the answer is no. I don't I don't think that that was going to be my forever niche. I think it's a massive part of what I'm interested in and where I want to end up. But I think that the podcast space was always meant to be more exploratory. It was meant to be whatever I felt like talking about in that moment or whatever conversation I wanted to have or bringing people on and chatting about lots of different things, you know, just doing anything and everything I wanted to do. Not because I think I'm qualified to, but just because I wanted to have fun. I wanted to have that experimentation place and space, really. I recently did a, like, one of those Instagram get to know the creator, like, send me a number and I'll answer questions about myself kind of post. And one of the questions that I got was like, why do you create? And I think that that was a really good point of reflection for me to sit back and be like, yeah, why do I create? I think the initial point of starting this podcast and this space, which is this, by the way, was not at all how I planned to intro this episode, but I guess we're just going to go with it. Um, When I initially envisioned this podcast, it was going to be always a place where I'm having conversations and I'm exploring topics that are getting neglected and doing so hopefully in an eloquent and interesting way. I don't know if I'm fulfilling that because that's for you, dear listener, to decide whether it's eloquent and interesting. But it has been a really good fulfillment of also this creative void. I think I've had a creative void in my life for years now, and it's not because of any one particular reason. It's for a lot of reasons. It's because of having influences around me that were not supportive. Today is going to be a departure from other things that I've done up until now. And I hope it's well received. But I also know that it's like, it's crazy that I only have like three episodes out right now. And like, it's episode four. And yet I feel already almost confined by my own created defenses almost. Like that's kind of incredible how quickly we can do that to ourselves, um, isn't it? So anyway, moving on from this. So now at least now you know what this <laughs> this episode is going to be about in in part. It's not related um, to environment. At least you know that bit. But what it is related to is something that I think I've been pondering about for like maybe the past year and a half, really. And I think there's going to be a lot of content that is situated in the past year and a half. And now I'm finally getting to produce it and put it out into the world. And it's something that's been like on my mind. And it's, I think, with the advent of things like Clubhouse and where I see and how I see social media almost being used, at least by my generation, in case you were curious, I'm a millennial. If it's not obvious, I have a side part, which is slowly moving to a middle part because I feel very bullied and attacked by my sister, um, who is a Gen Z member if that I don't know how you use this terminology. But either way, um, you know, for me and my generation, I think we might be noticing this. Or for me and people who use social media like me, it can be anybody of any age um, who's using it to learn things and to engage with things. I think we've just seen something really change in the past two years due to the coronavirus pandemic. And that is information overload or the overconsumption of knowledge. So I know I talk a lot about consumption and I'm just kind of pivoting it. <laughs> 
a little bit and trying to say it's different. It's also kind of the same. Um, do you see how I'm struggling with branding here? I'm really, really struggling. But either way, um, this episode is all about information overload. I was like, I can't be the only one feeling this level of exhaustion. I can't be the only one who is feeling that weight of having to be everywhere at every moment or at least every waking moment. Um, I've given up on trying to be there every sleeping moment. I'm going to get my seven hours of sleep. I don't care what happens. So (laughs) at least all my waking moments have to be engaged. I have to be engaged. I have to be active. I have to be talking. I have to be networking. I have to be reading. I have to be listening. I have to be constantly engaged with information at all times. And I think it's not just me. I'm going to go out there and just sit on a limb and say, even if it's not you, maybe it's like a friend, maybe you know someone who deals with this problem or is feeling that pressure. Maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a parent, maybe it is someone you know in your social bubble that you see kind of almost hustle culturing, but like this is kind of adjacent where it's kind of like, you may not have an actual hustle that's making you money, but at least you are mentally and emotionally driving yourself in that direction. It's really kind of overwhelming. And Thankfully, I'm not the only one. So even if you personally do not relate to this, which maybe you do, maybe you don't, there is a Harvard Business Review article on it from 2009 of all times. And it references things like likes and pokes on Facebook and the BlackBerry generation. And so you really know it is is not being written in 2020 and is not being written at all with the idea that there will be a pandemic that completely will make it worse. And we will be going from Facebook pokes to clubhouse invites from Blackberries all the way over to Zoom calls, just being like a consistent part of your life. It is titled Death by Information Overload by Paul Hemp. The article is really well written. And I guess my one critique of the article, um, not from like a content perspective, but just from a framework perspective, I think this article and this author was much more engaged with the idea of, yes, we have information overload, which is leading to attention issues, which leads to bad business. Whereas for me, I'm much more coming at from it um, with an angle of information overload is exhausting, (laughs) period. I have no, I'm not taking this further than that. So I guess that's like my one feedback would be if you're reading it, it does kind of shift into that. Like, how do you do good business and solutions, which maybe I don't agree with for the sake of what I'm talking about today, but I will have that in the show notes below. Definitely go ahead and read it. And I'm still laughing because this was written in 2009. So imagine if this is how people felt in 2009. I can only imagine that it's gotten worse. So let's do the thing. Let's hop into this episode, breaking down what is the overconsumption of knowledge, what's happened to knowledge, and how social media and knowledge being ingrained into all these different places is fundamentally changing how we take in information. I think there's one really important thing to also preface this episode with, which is the democratization of knowledge. The democratization of knowledge is this idea that as technology has become more and more accessible through things like the internet, which is more widely available, it has made globalization occur at an even faster rate, and especially intellectual globalization, idea exchange, knowledge exchange, just we've completely changed that in the past 20 to 30 years. 
how we exchange knowledge. So the democratization of knowledge is a huge plus point in this conversation, and that shouldn't be overlooked. I'm not at all saying, or would I ever say, that you know I wish the internet didn't exist or that I wish people weren't able to give their opinions or give their ideas. I would be so far amiss to suggest that all sorts of people should not be able to get in on the conversation, that we shouldn't be listening to all sorts of different opinions. I think the democratization of knowledge has given so many marginalized groups or historically marginalized groups the space and the platform and the, you know, the amplification of voice that has been needed and been neglected for decades, if not centuries. You know, I would also say centuries. So I would never, ever critique the fact that democratization of knowledge is a problem, always. I think it's for the better, personally. I think that's really interesting. You can get into a whole argument about is censorship good, is censorship not good? Should the democratization of knowledge be allowed? Should it not be allowed? Da, 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 da. I'm not going down that rabbit hole. It is so beyond the depth of me as an individual. I'd love to have a conversation about it. But I do think that it provides a lot of pause for me um, to think that, you know, how much is this overconsumption of knowledge or information overload in connection with the democratization of knowledge. And of course, there's a link. There is a link because the more people that can put their opinion out, the more opinions and pieces of knowledge that are out there, the more that those opinions and knowledge are taken as fact, which means that our brains and our emotions respond to them. And therefore, we feel overwhelmed by having to take it in and process it and give our own opinion on it and on the loop continue. But I'm going to make a very clear point here that I would never change what's going on right now, but merely want to reflect on it. And that's the point of this episode is to provide some reflection point, not at all to say that I don't want to hear from groups and people that are benefiting so heavily and so deeply from this opportunity to be able to speak on so many different platforms and raise so many voices that historically have been neglected. Um, and it's high time that they're listened to. So that's kind of an interesting point as well. It's kind of the opposite of what this episode is about, but it's worth bringing up. I do think it's worth bringing up and saying that, you know, we're we're in some really gray territory. And I really wanted to name the podcast like gray gray space or something with a pun with a gray because so much of what I want to discuss or so much of what every episode ends up being is just playing in the gray area. that I think is very alarming from a knowledge perspective, right? From a knowing perspective. And knowledge is something that is actually very philosophical. I'm not going to get into it. I'm really not. But there's so much you can unpack about what it means to know, what it means to acquire information, what it means to truly know something versus know something at a surface level. There are so many philosophers who've developed an entire science to epistemology, which is the science of knowing and how do we know what we know. It's really interesting. I'm not going to get into it here because it is way beyond my academic grade. But Hemp's article does a really good job of kind of explaining our first initial understandings of what happened to knowledge. So he says, and I quote, information overload, of course, dates back to Gutenberg. The invention of movable type led to a proliferation of printed matter that quickly exceeded what a single human mind could absorb in a lifetime. Later technologies from carbon paper to the photocopier made replicating existing information even easier. And once information was digitized, documents could be copied in limitless numbers at virtually no cost. So this is really interesting because this is talking about knowledge as repetitive. It's not necessarily new. It's the same knowledge, but just being disseminated faster. So at some point in history, the scope of technology was not necessarily to provide you with new information, but at least was able to get you the most 
current or trending information, if you will, if we want to use that word for ancient history. But you may not have known XYZ, but now you could know XYZ and you'd kind of be on par with everyone else who had access to that same book. But what's fundamentally changed from that point onward is when we have the digitization of content. Because now, not only do you have production and distribution costs, which kind of exist in more traditional spaces like paper publishing or book publishing and newspapers and things like that, now anyone can be a publisher with the advent of technology integrating into the knowledge space. So new information is published and distributed, and sometimes even without any active human participation. So now we have information and knowledge being thrown at us, even if a human is not behind that, and even if we did not ask for it. So there might have even been a point in history where you were going to go check out that library book, or you were going to go pay for that book and buy it. But now you're kind of being thrown information regardless of if you asked for it or not. A really good example that this particular article cites, and again, it's from 2009, so my jaw kind of drops when I see references that today are such a big problem, but they obviously existed in the past as well, is Amazon recommendations. So Amazon recommendations are a type of knowledge because they're recommending what they think is best for you, and you get to expand your understanding of what's out there in the world because this AI technology was able to identify your interests and suggest the right thing to you. So it's kind of like we've gone from knowledge being encompassed within us and staying the same to knowledge knowledge constantly evolving and there always being something to engage with whether or not it's created by a human or not and whether or not you asked for it. So from here, content really ramps up and the idea of content and knowledge and information, all of which I think are very distinct terms, but I'm not going to go into all of their um, nuances. But either way, you're getting a like a boatload of information from the internet, from every different kind of format possible, whether that's like text messages, you've got Twitter tweets, you've got emails, you've got Facebook, you've got Instagram, you've got, I have a whole list actually in front of me. I don't know why I'm trying to say it off the top of my head. You've got Discord channels now, you've got Discord forums or Slack channels, you've got articles, you've got hot takes where people just make a declaration and then you're meant to sit there and assess what you should do with that information or what your opinion is in relation to that. You've got LinkedIn posts, which are getting cringier and lengthier as the days go by. You've got blogs, like individual people's blogs. You've got collaborative blogs. You've got make your own blog on my website blogs. You've got videos. You've got hustle culture. You've got photos. You've got Pinterest. You've got all sorts of ways. I feel like I'm getting exhausted just thinking of all the different notifications I can check in a day and from all the different avenues from which I'm getting new information at any given second and adding to my knowledge, quote unquote, adding to my knowledge. That wasn't a quote from anybody. I'm just saying adding to my knowledge is questionable, honestly. I think what I find really interesting is this is all new info, but what I find very panic-worthy is the very strange metrics we use to validate or invalidate that knowledge or that piece of information, which ties into a lot of things like fake news and the kinds of new realities that we've seen emerge, especially in the past four to five years. But what makes it even more frustrating as someone who's not, I'm not even trying to get into fake news realm, right? I'm just trying to stay in the, you are an average Joe and you are just, or you are an average Joanna and you are just living your life, right? The fact that we have these very strange metrics of deciding what is valid or invalid makes swimming through all that information and sorting through all that information or knowledge even more exhaustingly difficult because now everyone can have a platform. And it's, actually incredible to me, especially on social media, how easy it is to convince someone that you are the specialist and you are the expert. And it really doesn't take all that much to make that happen. So 
Take, for instance, that you're following a social media page that claims to know everything about mental health. And this page is claiming to be run by someone or another who claims to know all things mental health. They may well have credentials to their name. They may well be degree holders or doctors or practitioners of any kind of sort. But honestly, you wouldn't know that if you, you know, you would you just wouldn't know. Honestly, I, I'm laughing because I'm like, oh yeah, you would you would be able to tell, but actually you can't tell because what they would put in their bio is what you're led to believe. And when you see someone share from them, that's a nod from someone within your personal space that you've given credit to already, now passing on their credit to this other figure who you really don't have any verification of, or you don't know how valid they are. And yet we still take their knowledge as fact, or we take their knowledge and we add it to our own and we continue on our little knowledge journey, passing on whatever we find. It's not dangerous. But I would say it's a little bit concerning. Um, it's a little bit pause-worthy because it makes it really difficult to know what's real anymore and what's just a facade. And I'm not the first one to call this out, obviously. But I think the caution that needs to come with this isn't being discussed enough, you know. And I also think that creating a space like this is also equally really interesting because you're self-proclaiming something. And I can put myself as a case study as well. I have in my bio, I think like mindful consumption, environment, da 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 da. When someone reads something like that and they've never met me before, they're going to be like, oh, this girl claims to be like an expert in this or a specialist in this. Even if I haven't claimed a PhD in the space, because there are definitely academics who know way more than me and there are definitely practitioners who know a thousand things more than me. But yet when you perceive me and you perceive my knowledge, you're going to see it as coming from a certain type of personality or a certain type of level of understanding and knowledge of that particular issue. And it's wild because we've gone from trusting people who have written novels and essays and dedicated their lives to a subject to trusting any old human who decided that actually I'm going to make an Instagram page and start putting my ideas out there and gain traction and then just keep making new content, which is very different than creating research or creating and you don't even, hold on. Like, yeah, this is all wrong. You don't even create research. Doing research, conducting research versus creating content, right? Those are two very different methods of knowledge or the creation of knowledge or the dispersion of knowledge. And one thing I love to discuss that's in the similar vein of like, how did we end up with mega influencers or people with these massive platforms and this, the concepts of these algorithms and things like that is that, you know, when you hear social media creators or the people, developers basically behind these platforms talking about the different features that they brought on, there's always this kind of innocence to it where they're like, yeah, we just, you know, we just wanted this to be easier. Or we just wanted to spread positivity. So we did X, Y, Z before it turns into like, likes are actually ruining your self-esteem. There was a really large correlation between how much likes people were getting and their perceptions of themselves. And that was like a whole thing within psychology to be like, you know, oh, well, we're having a lot of youth and teens having trouble with their self-worth or with their self-confidence because they've tied it to likes, which were originally created by the developers to be a source of positivity or a source of like, yeah, I like what you're saying and I back you up or whatever. So in that same vein, you also have things like the blue tick. Now, I haven't heard a big analysis of the blue tick, but this is my take on it, which I'm sure people will disagree with or agree with. Really excited to hear what you guys think. But I think that blue ticks have been a really interesting source of verification almost. To my knowledge, blue ticks were originally brought on board 
on social media platforms to help acknowledge that this is the one, this is the only, this is that great writer that you've been wanting to follow. This is that actor. But now it's spread out to anybody. So if you are somebody who just has a really large following, you can petition to get a verified tick, which is interesting because it goes from, okay, this is that one person that I've heard about to, is this someone I should know about? You know, sometimes I come, I come across people where I'm like, you have a blue tick. Like, who are you? The fact that they have the blue tick makes me think they're worth getting to know or they're worth following for their content or for whatever they're sharing, which is so interesting because it's a point of verifiability that would have never happened before. You know, you usually would have been left to your own devices to figure out whether or not this person was worth following. You would have scrolled through all of their content as best as you could, which obviously is impossible with the amount of content that's out today. But this blue tick is your shortcut. It's the shortcut to say, actually, I don't need to creep through all of their content. They seem to have, you know, some sort of legitimacy within this space, the health space, the fitness space, the whatever it is. I'm just going to go ahead and give them a follow and, and that's cool. The other piece of this is following numbers. So I know Instagram right now is like twiddling with the idea or it has twiddled with the idea and it's implemented it in some places and not others, which is removing your likes. And so no one can see your likes. Personally, I actually think likes aren't that big of a deal. I know I mentioned earlier that they were tied to um, self-esteem. Um, I do think maybe getting rid of them for like smaller people or average people maybe or teenagers. I don't know. I think there's some like parameters you can put in. But I personally think that likes in regards to platforms are not the issue. I think the follower count is. I think we value so much more who else is following this account and how many people are following this account and think that that is what tells us that this is good content or this is legitimate content or this is something I should be engaging with. So what personally I would love to see is the removal of follower counts. I don't want to see that people have 250,000. I don't want to see that people have half a million. I don't want to see that they have 1 million. And the reason why is because when I see that many people following it, I think it conditions so many of us to think, oh, maybe I should be doing this as well. Oh, I see my favorite creator is following this person. Maybe I should also join in. Maybe I should also join in the fun. Maybe there's something I'm missing. And I think that's so wild because if I didn't have that following count and this was just another account that I really couldn't, you know, guess the metrics of, I would be left to my own discernment around whether or not this count is worth following because I would click through their posts. I would see if the content really resonates with me. I would think about whether or not this topic really even interests me to begin with. There's so many pieces of the puzzle that I would have to kind of explore myself rather than being fed that follow button and the metrics on a silver platter and really not engaging with their content at all. So I think those are really interesting ways that we've shifted the conversation around who's worth following and for what. And one more piece of knowledge information that I think is really, really interesting and also kind of troublesome and confusing is the edit button. Like the fact that we have a way to go back and edit things and change them. Now, this isn't prevalent. I mean, it is prevalent. I think we've all seen it on platforms where somebody has said something terribly incorrect and, you know, insulting somebody or saying something that's really racist or or misogynistic or like all sorts of things, right? We've seen that happen and they're able to go in and just hit the edit button and remove it and issue an apology and it kind of gets wiped from the internet unless you're like a drama channel and taking screenshots or or whatever. You're one of those like spill the tea type Instagram pages, right? But if you're an average Joe, oftentimes we aren't aware of when all this editing is happening. 
through text even, right? Like I'm not even talking about editing and manipulation of photos. I'm talking about just the textual captions that we are choosing to engage with that are our quickest way of understanding what's going on is is the words that are on the screen. So even that can be amended and edited. And one thing that I was actually very surprised by, I was watching a YouTube video by Lena Norms, who is my favorite booktuber. If you don't know who she is, I will definitely have this video of hers linked down below where she talks about the issue I'm going to bring up. But overall, if you're into like books, if you're into literature, if you're into like really good value footage, like just valued productions or just really high quality video production, she is just a plus plus chef's kiss. I'm obsessed with her. So I'll have her linked below, but she worked in the P- in the book publishing industry for quite a while. And so she talks about how when she worked with Kindle, she would sometimes be asked to go in and, you know, fix the grammar or fix the grammatical errors that they found in the book. And that's really interesting to me. I didn't know they could tamper with something that you'd actually already bought already. So suppose I bought the book from Kindle already. They can still get somebody to go in because it's also owned by them, even if it's owned by me or I bought it, air quotes. They can go in and fix it or change it or do whatever they want, which is wild. Because imagine thinking that this is the book I've bought and it's going to stay like this forever in pristine condition. But actually, virtually, everyone has the opportunity to change whatever they want, to be really honest, um, and fix it up or, or change things or add things to it. That's wild. So she mentions that, yes, there's grammatical errors that they'll adjust and fix. But the crazier thing is that they can also go in and change the whole introduction of books. So unlike where in a paper book that you own, you're going to get to keep that copy. It's going to stay unchanged. You know, nothing about it can really evolve. It's going to stay the same for its entire lifetime of being in that book format. Once you make it a virtual book or a digital book, people can change it or amend it. Of course, this doesn't go for every type of file on the planet. But the fact of the matter is that we can amend things and change things. And so she mentions that she used to own a book um, that she bought through Kindle or through Amazon, and they changed the introduction of it to be written by somebody else. And so she was like, wait a second, I didn't buy this edition with the intention of wanting this introduction. I wanted that introduction. And now that introduction is gone. It's it's not owned by me anymore. And it's no longer in my hands. So just like the digital versatility of information, right? The digital um, modification that can take place without our consent or without us wanting to is really crazy because I think many of us have grown up in a world where you didn't have that, you know, happen so easily or it wasn't that um, simple to just change something that's already been printed or written. But now we just have so much opportunity to diversify up what we're meant to be reading. And it just adds that layer of like, oh man, like another thing I need to check or another way for me to keep my brain on and engaged at all times when engaging with this content. So Sifting through all this new information has been exhaustingly difficult. But now, what happens with that new information and living in that new information age? We all know how this works on WhatsApp, right? We've all got our like little immediate family group chat that sometimes is casual, may have that one parent or one sibling that like loves to keep it going off all the time. And then you got like the big family group chat, all right? And there's like two different personalities going on. Like in my little family group chat, I got this like one message from my dad possibly where it's kind of like questionable content, right? It'll be like a video clipped together, very obviously done on iMovie with like very basic skills. Like it's put together. It could possibly be far right propaganda, but like, uh, we're just, we can, we can deal with that, right? Cause it's our dad. But then the family group chat goes off and it's like, 
uncle number five is sending the same kind of content, but with like a really lengthy caption about how he feels very passionately towards it. And he thinks this is the right moves and we should all be in agreement about this. And we should all like go grab our pitchforks and do X, Y, Z. And then the aunt number two that is in the corner being like, turmeric is going to solve all your problems. And here's a video about it. And turmeric is going to save you from the COVID virus. If you just grind it up and put it in a little face mask and put it on your face for 10 minutes, I promise you it's going to help close your nose. And then you're never going to be able to inhale the virus ever again. Yay. Dun, dun, dun. No, <laughs> can we not do this? You know, And it's miserable because these are the populations most susceptible to struggling with media literacy or media accuracy. And they are the ones dealing with that information overload. And I don't know about you. I think we should just, uh, I'll leave those groups. You know what I mean? If it were up to me, but uh, we can't do that. We can't leave our loved ones <laughs> in the dark about all of this kinds of stuff. I think aside from the insanity of being expected to validate and verify all the sources of knowledge you're getting, and you are getting a lot, I think even more than maybe we all realize. I think when we sit down to think about, oh my goodness, how many hours am I taking in information versus processing? Because I think those are two different practices, to be really honest. It's kind of overwhelming how much you're taking in and and how many sources you're taking it in from. But I think the most alarming source or a, a really alarming space is WhatsApp. When I see apps like WhatsApp that end up targeting or end up being used heavily by members of the population who will never listen to my podcast, right? Like my parents barely listen to it. Um, and I love them to pieces for trying, but it's not their main form of intake, right? That's not their main form of information intake. And it's really unfair for that to be the expectation. But what ends up happening is then you get media literacy and media literacy versus media illiteracy, which is what I just said earlier. Media literacy is really, really key. It's so important to be able to know how to shift through and sift through information and know what is bull, just complete bull, and what are facts. But it's really hard to do that when you live in a world where you're overwhelmed with information. I feel like your brain processing capacity is completely shot. And of course, the Harvard Business Review article goes into a lot of details and ideas in regards to that. But I think it's just really concerning to see where we're going to end up when it comes down to information and how it's going to be spread around. But I do have a lot of faith and hope and trust in us, you know, people who are able to at least see what's happening and draw awareness to it and be able to say, hey, this isn't the best practice or this is not one of the best things that could be happening to us as a society overall. I know that sounds so dramatic, but listen, I think it's okay. You know what? Just call it out. Know that you're being surrounded by all this information and we're probably good to go, right? Until all of a sudden, it's basically the way that we connect. Another topic within this space is the cult of expertise or the expectation of expertise. It's kind of like you can't seem to have a conversation anymore without being the expert on it. And you kind of have to be the expert on it to partake in the conversation. And I think it's really funny um, as I'm saying this because I'm no expert on knowledge or systems of knowledge or knowledge information or knowledge sharing. I'm no expert. I have zero qualifications or credentials. I'm just merely a consumer. But I think what 
I do feel qualified to talk about is the fact that in my day-to-day life, I have personally seen a shift. I've seen a shift where, you know, for me to talk about anything, I have to have read like two or three articles leading up to it or seen that post that everyone's referring to. It can't just be experiential anymore. It has to be kind of backed up or I always have to be citing something. Um, Do I blame our English teachers or school teachers who taught us to cite every piece of information ever? I don't know. I don't think it's that simple, but I do think that there is this really intense, you know, expertise that has to be driven into any sort of conversation. And I also think that kind of goes hand in hand with like content creation to a degree. I think what we've seen is that you are no longer allowed to be a generalist, or if you are somebody who wants to speak publicly, you can't be a generalist. If you are somebody who wants to have a career, it's best not to be a generalist. You have to kind of pick your lane and then like run in it. You know, you got to sprint in it and and run a thousand fields ahead. And what that does is I think leave out all the other identities to us, right? Like politics at one point in my life was a huge part of my life. It was like everything I ate, slept, breathed politics when I was in college. I think it was one of those topics that I was always interested in. I thought I was going to go to law school. I thought I was going to become like some sort of local politician. Like that was, I don't know if a lot of people know that that was a huge dream of mine for years. But I think what happened was I fell out of love with it. But that doesn't mean that like the information fell out of my head or like the way that I consume information or the way that I consume news changed. Actually, I feel like sometimes we gatekeep when people don't know the macro level things or don't take interest in the exact same thing that we do or in the way that we do. Sometimes we say, uh-uh-uh, like you actually don't know about it and I'm going to inform you or you're actually not the expert in it, I am. And sometimes that's an ego-filled conversation, but sometimes it is just because we don't know or we want to know our particular niche, but we forget that there's a thousand one other niches to have. Um, I think sometimes you get caught up in being the friend that's good at X, but other people also may forget, well, I'm good at X, but I'm also good at Y. And I think by having this cult of expertise or this expectation that you should be an expert and you make your entire personality and your all your interests able to fit into 150 characters to fit into your Instagram bio or into your Twitter bio or into your LinkedIn headline. You know, you have to condense yourself so deeply to seem impactful and caring and an expert in whatever you want to, whatever you're interested in. But is it really what you are at the end of the day? I think to summarize it, because I feel like this is kind of a topic that actually would be great to have someone else on for and to speak with. But to summarize it, I think sometimes we end up with, we don't realize that this is what we're doing. We're becoming hyper-specialists sometimes and at the point of struggling to be able to socially normally communicate because we think that everyone's thinking the same way we are or everyone's consuming the same information we are. I think in the film, um, The Social Network, which is the Netflix documentary that is really good. I've, I've heard there's a lot of criticism and I haven't taken the time out to like read it or engage with the critiques overall, but I do think it's a really good film that makes you pause and think. And one of the things that they highlight is that you are intentionally being fed certain things. So if I like a post on politics, I'm going to be fed more politics. If I like a post on environment, I'm going to be fed more on environment. And so it's kind of like, you know, it's algorithms and whatever other technical terms that you want to use are drawing us into our little holes further and further and therefore making our emotions and feelings about those things more and more kind of polar for the better or for the worse. I don't mean to use polar in like some sort of radical sense. But then when you have the cult of expertise kick in, you will likely be the expert, but you're kind of the expert in this niche thing or you're becoming an expert and it's as someone else who may not be the expert, it's becoming harder to interact with people with that expertise or with that, you know, deep dive into something. And it's very interesting because it provides pause. And again, 
generalization, I have no data to back this up, but I think it's worth talking about because I wonder if other people are feeling the same way when it comes to having to feel like an expert or feeling this pressure of, I need to know everything about everything. And if you've been lucky, this algorithm has shown you the path to know everything about everything or about that one topic. But if you're not, then you're kind of just left on your own. In the same way, you can say the same thing about current events. You can say, actually, I'm not that interested in learning about this XYZ topic in a lot of detail. And the one that I think is really funny is the whole GameStop, Reddit, Wall Street dilemma that happened a couple months back where, honestly, I'm not even going to get into it because what I found really interesting from a social media phenomenon is suddenly everyone felt this pressure to know oh my God, how does the stock market work? What just happened? And like, what does this mean for all of us? And it's kind of like, of course, the stock market is available to everybody. And as a kid who has a parent who's really involved in stocks and like, honestly, my dad's been talking to me about stocks since I was like, I can distinctly remember I was like nine years old and we were talking about stocks at the breakfast table and my brain could not fathom how something could have millions and thousands of pieces without being physical. Like, I just couldn't get that. My brain could not wrap my head around that. I like, you know, conceptually, stocks have never made sense to me. I get them now. Don't worry. I I don't need a lesson in on it. But like, oh, man, like, has it been a part of my life for as long as I can remember? But the thing is, it's not a part of everyone's life. And it's not meant to be. I don't think everyone's meant to engage with the stock market. I think they're meant to engage in responsible financial planning, but not that's not always the stock route for everybody, you know, Um, and I'm not a financial advisor. So please don't come to me. And I don't even know what I'm saying is correct. But I think the point of the matter is that as far as knowing all the nitty gritty details of the relationship between Reddit and the stock market and this Robin Hood situation and da 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 da, really, really, at the end of the day, select people are interested because it affects their industries and affects their life. But for someone that's a really average Joe that is literally just living their lives, doesn't really care about the stock market, maybe has something invested in there without them even knowing because that's what banks do in the background. They really don't need to worry about this kind of stuff. And I think it should be completely normalized and accepted for me to say, actually, I'm not really keen on being drowned in information about it. Don't get me wrong. I don't think ignorance is allowed. I don't think you should be like, I'm not interested in knowing anything at all, um, especially when it comes to social issues. But I do think that there's a utility in saying, or at least in accepting, even if you're not saying it, that, hey, maybe I'm not gonna spend two hours going into a wormhole about something that doesn't interest me just because I feel the pressure that everyone else knows what's going on. I need to know too. I think that's the crux of this conversation. I think if up until now I've really offended you, I think we can really come back to this one point, which is not all of us have to care about everything and not all of us have to care about it with the veracity of pretending like our lives are committed to it, which is what has happened. In the cult of expertise or in the expectation of expertise, you are meant to pretend like you know everything about everything that's happening even when you really could not care less or even when you know a surface level introduction to it is enough for you and it should be perfectly acceptable to say actually i'm not interested in learning the deep dive into all the rest of the things in relation to this This was kind of a wild episode, right? I think it's probably going to come off as ranty to some of you, maybe a little whiny, maybe a little like, okay, that was a waste of an hour. I'm really sorry if you felt that way. I would love some feedback. But 
I think that there are some solutions to this um, for anyone who is resonating and feels like, wow, I either didn't realize that this was going on to me or now that I'm aware of it, I want to know what I can do about it. And I think the first place to start is to give yourself grace. You know, give yourself the grace to say, I don't have to know everything. I don't have to study everything. I don't have to spend all my mental energy trying to keep up. I think keeping up versus taking interest are two very different things. But I know I definitely and certainly felt the pressure at certain points with engaging with social media where I was like, oh, I have to know about this. I have to know about what's going on in the Financial Times because everyone seems to be talking about it. But that doesn't mean I have to care. And that doesn't mean I have to pretend like I know how it works, you know? Find comfort in saying, I actually don't know. And find comfort in saying, you know, actually, can you tell me more about that? And making that a part of your daily rapport, making that a comfortable part of your daily life to say, I actually don't know the answer and relieving yourself of the burden of pretending like you know where. So stop the scrolling, stop the madness and get off, (laughs) get off, find your peace, find your happy place that is away from the content consumption and try to find out what you're really interested in and curate that space. And I think there's a whole episode I want to do on the curation of your digital space, but I will do that much, much later. It is too far. This episode's gone on too long already from a recording perspective. Yeah, this is this has been a ranty, hopefully informative episode Hopefully not too crazy or aggressive. Hopefully I didn't speak too fast. Lots of hopefuls at the end of this. Um, but yeah, this has been, a, this has been a North Shell Live episode. This has been something that has been on my heart and on my mind for ages. And I think it's just been relieving to like talk through why I think it's such a problem with you guys. And I don't think this was the last time I'm going to be talking about this. I think this is a topic that for whatever reason struck a chord with me. I can think of many, but I don't think it's the last time I'm going to talk about it. So this is kind of an open call. If you've listened to the end, you deserve to hear this open call, but this is kind of an open call to anybody that's keen on talking about this. I would love to do a part two. I would love to get people who either know more, who either think more about this kind of stuff, who've done more research or read books on it. Um, If you know about this, like hit me up, let's talk about it and maybe we can get you on the pod. I don't know if open calls like this are socially acceptable, but I'm just going to go for it. So if you're interested in chatting about this more, if you have thoughts, if you want to collaborate, hit me up at norshal.live on Instagram or send me a message to my Gmail, which is the same username at gmail.com. And if you're not interested in collaborating with me, fine. I'm just kidding. Um, I really do think that it was really great getting to share these thoughts with you guys because they've been mulling in my head a lot, but I would love to know what you guys think. This is hopefully not an isolated situation, I think, for myself, but I'm curious, are there any points that I missed where you see consumption overload? Do you feel like it all the time? Do you feel like this during certain times of the year? Do you see this with certain topics over others? I'm sure there's so many experiences I've missed out. So I really want to hear what you guys think. Come chat with me on the pod page on Instagram and let's get more ideas churning. I'm dying to hear what you guys have to say. I'm not going to lie. I freak out anytime any of you guys messages me because wow, humans. So hit me up. We will chat. And in the meantime, take care and I'll see you guys in the next episode. Bye.